the idea that you make the coaches and the athletes part of the team rather than back to the first part of my career, maybe we we were too much about us and them. You know, the athletes were always the subjects and so that you do things to them rather than them investing themselves in the same way. I think that's that's the difference or the line that we've crossed now that makes this much better research because, I mean, as you know, if you're trying to measure performance, it's the most difficult thing you'll ever measure. And one of the reasons is that unless the athlete's totally invested in performing, then, you know, you, you'll never know whether you got it right. You know, if athletes are just dialing in at performance just to, you know, to, to tick the box on a, a sheet, that's not really getting to the nub of what research should be about. And so making athletes part of the um part of the team and having them as excited about finding out something as you is um I think one of the real secrets of doing it well. Hello there folks, I hope you're keeping well, connecting with people and anti-backing your door handles. Welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this is a special episode focused on supporting and championing you during this strange, critical and ever-changing public health crisis. Once again, I'll be brief in today's introduction because the next couple of episodes of the podcast, we're going to break away from the normal regularity as we capture, produce and air some relevant content to the COVID-19 crisis. In today's episode, I talk to Professor Louise Burke, Chief of Nutrition Strategy at the Australian Institute of Sport, where she's led the nutrition support work for Team Australia since 1990. Louise is certainly one of the world's leading sports dietitians. She has been there and done it, but uniquely has an outstanding achievement record in both applied sport and in research. I caught up with Louise to ask her about some of the big things people can be doing to ensure a healthy diet to support immune function and to support training during this time, and what people can do when their normal food choices aren't necessarily available in the supermarkets anymore. I also take a brief opportunity to ask Louise about her key experiences and lessons learned from an illustrious career in support of elite performance. Well, very warm welcome, Louise. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Now, so much that we can get into with you. You're on in that uniquely placed group of individuals that have had stellar careers with athletes and coaches, but also into research. But um, but the reason I reached out to you was to well to to try and tap into some of your. Uh, extreme nutrition knowledge but I must ask how are you how are things with you first thank you for asking uh I'm in a guess a sense of um unreality or or it's really hard to explain how you sort of feel you've got plenty of things to do but it just doesn't feel real you wake up every day and you think my real life isn't happening and maybe tomorrow when I wake up it's going to be different but I guess this is going to be the new normal for a while and how are you coping with that? Um, I'm actually enjoying some aspects of it. I, I don't know how many times in my life I've said to myself, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could just put a pause button on the world for six months and catch up with myself? How good would that be? And it's almost like be careful what you wish for because, um, you know, perhaps this is a time now where we can think on what we want to do that's important and get rid of some of the um the stuff that happens around us that isn't important that we can't do anymore and, you know, just um, recalibrate. So you need to find a way of, of putting pause for six months with, without a, a looming pandemic. <laughs> That'd be ideal. And how are Team Australia? So tell me what's what's happening locally there. What's uh, What are the team up to? Well, um, the AIS has, has sent people home and has suggested that all use this opportunity to think about what we can do that's valuable um, that is on our to-do list that we never seem to get round to because there's always sort of urgent things, not necessarily always important, but there's always enough to do in the day to um, take up your time. So this is a, a good time to think about what value you can add and maybe this you, you can you know, 
reorganize the way you do things or the things that you're working on to be more about what is needed to be done rather than what you get pushed into doing. Um, and I think all of us mm. are now feeling wonderful to have another year to prepare for Tokyo. I mean, it's almost a gift, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's very, very rare in your life that you've got time to to think about with you know more opportunities rather than um, having more stuff just dumped on you and less time to do it in. So I'm I'm actually you know trying to think of the silver linings around this, and I think there's plenty. Yeah, I like that idea that that, that extra year to prepare, but also given the, the current situation, you're not obviously forgetting that there's going to be a three-year Olympic cycle, the one after. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how you feel, but it always says that that year after the Olympics you waste it. You know, there's so many reviews or people finishing up and new things about to start, and there seems to be that year often waste so maybe we can just say that um all right we've had that <laughs> we can move on to the um, productive part of the cycle uh now we're probably into some topics that would be well worth our discussion and compare and contrast some of the the, the british experiences and the australian experiences over the last 20 plus years because i never really felt I, we, we probably felt that uh fallow year what I maybe once in my career after the 96 games, but then after that, it was just press your foot on the accelerator <laughs> right from the word go. So listen, let's, before we get into that, um, could I, could I ask you um, right at the top of the recording here um, for some advice? Because what we're seeing on the podcast is people are tapping into this for content People are interested in hearing stories as almost a form of distraction. The last, the last podcast about some advice around coping. Um, what we're seeing in the in, in people's listenership is that that they're listening to the first five ten minutes <laughs> and see whether they're into it or not. Um, so I'd love to be able to put some some practical advice around the world of nutrition uh, for people, uh, for athletes, but also for people with with perhaps some new constraints around. Their, their eating in terms of access, type, variety, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on first of all, about maintaining uh, a re- robust system, health and, and immune function, Louise. Well, I think this is a really interesting time to start thinking about why we eat what we eat. Um, often people think about, you know, health or think about, um, say, energy balance or um, other aspects of where nutrition contributes is being really under tight control. You know, there's two things. So there's, if you think about energy balance, it's expenditure and intake as if they're really simple, controllable factors. Yes, I can just go and burn more calories or I can just eat fewer calories if I'm worried about balance. And yet nutrition is um, such an amazingly complex um, construct. You know, why we eat what we eat is made up of so many different factors, and some of it's around food availability, some of it's around convenience and social habits, social norms. Um, yes, some of it's about how we react to the way that our emotions are, are going and what what that tips us into doing in terms of using food. And yet, all those different elements of what makes us eat what we eat are going to change in 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 this self-isolation and sometimes we think about the really obvious ones or there might be you know food shortages or there might be different um, ways in which I have to eat if I can't go out to restaurants like I used to be able to do so they're the obvious ones but you know I'm thinking about some of these sort of really less obvious ones you know people don't realize that some one of the factors that drives what we eat is the social norm. We all like to be eating the way that we think that the, the best people are eating. We like to show off some part of our identity around what we eat. And that's been changing over the last the years as social media has become such a, a big thing. So, you know, people Instagram everything they eat now and you're looking at other people's Instagram pictures of what they're eating and that has an effect on the way that you eat too because, you know, you want to be part of what the cool people are doing and you want people to think um, that you're cool so that you're showing what you know, you're eating as, as part of that whole interaction. 
And so now if we have fewer people eating around each other and observing it in real life and a lot more of it's happening on Instagram, maybe that means that that aspect that underpins one of the reasons about what we eat will be changing and that's perhaps something that you haven't thought about before. So there's all these intangibles that will change. Um, I think you asked me about what's healthy to eat or how can we be eating from the point of view of maybe um, being good for our health, not just thinking about the self-isolation but thinking about how our immune system might cope with the COVID virus. But, um, you know, there are elements to nutrition, I think, that we haven't got a great handle on in terms of the specifics but I think that the basics around being able to be well-nourished, to be happy about the way that we're eating, to be eating enough energy, to be spreading our um, protein over the day, they're all things that we've been thinking about in terms of sports performance, getting the best out of our athletes. And I think that all those things, if we can put them into place, will give us the best kind of protection. But it's interesting that we all seem to think we need to boost. You know, I'm seeing all these websites saying, mm. Know, ways to boost your immune system as if, you know, that's we can turn it up to 11 in some way <laughs> for these special times. And it's a nice concept to think that nutrition could do that, but I think it's perhaps a bit um, overreaching if we think about the science. I think the, we do want to have strong, healthy immune systems and, and that's one of the benefits of eating well, but I don't think there's really anything we can do that suddenly will turn it up to 11 to say, well, we're under more stress now, so we're going to need something extra. I think it's all about saying um, if we're eating well, then our immune systems are, are doing a good job, and that's one of the reasons that we choose to eat well, but there's nothing special, little magic um, kind of potion that you're going to be able to pull out at this time that makes it any better. It's almost not uh, not necessarily being able to turn the volume up, but it's it's – covering off some of the deficiencies that are relatively common deficiencies or, or or things that that perhaps people aren't doing quite as well um and i'm just thinking in terms of say uh alcohol consumption and how that can start to impair uh, your your protection uh whether it's people being a bit more vigilant about their sleep for example or or maybe even i'm just thinking in linking back to your previous comment about behavior and and vicarious influences um that perhaps people are under greater stress and so perhaps might be reverting to comfort foods during this time yes and that's that's you know one of the ways that people often think that we react when we're stressed we eat more or differently um some people eat fewer calories or or, or they um reduce their the good thing Things around the way they eat when they're stressed. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, when you when you read most of the information about COVID and self isolation, people are worried about overeating and, and the fact that it's going to be less easy to exercise and maybe we need to adjust our energy intake for energy balance. But um, we must think about the other people in the community who um, have issues around disordered eating, and that's also likely to be, be exacerbated. With the self-isolation. I was reading a statistic yesterday that um, one of the helplines, um, an eating disorder charity, has found a 30% increase over the last couple of weeks with the number of calls they're getting. So that, that feeling of anxiety and loss of control is, you know, one of the, um, the factors that can predispose people who have eating disorders to move further along the spectrum of the way that they behave. So I think um, there's so many different in complex ways that we will change our eating um, in this period of self-isolation or, or anxiety around COVID, and they're not always going to be in the same direction and they're not always going to be really obvious factors. And um, it's one of the fascinating things about nutrition. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I chose nutrition as, as my career is that it's, um, it's science, but there's also so much sort of psychology and sociology and so many other just um, just random things around eating it's it'd be lovely if we could just say to people oh it's all about knowledge and uh here's the here's the final recipe for the best diet ever 
that's all you ever need to know. But that isn't enough for people. You know, the, the way that we need to change behaviour around eating is so much more than just knowledge. It's all around habits and ideas and beliefs and and behaviours and, and all those intangibles and trying to, um, to, to, to make dietary change, whether it's in an individual or a population, is, is you know, much more complicated than a lot of people think. We have a variety of people that tune into the podcast. If you could give us some of the basics in terms of uh, not necessarily being able to dial up the immune system, but but ensure that it's it's adequately, adequately resourced or it's not impaired. What are the th- sort of things that people should be looking out for in their diet to, to stay healthy during this period? Well... We start usually with with energy and making sure that we're probably in balance is a good thing at this stage. So it's not a good time to be overeating or undereating, although there may be a push in either direction with that change in our energy um, expenditure patterns. Um, You'd like to think that people will be able to spread it over the day nice and evenly. Um, one of the areas of nutrition that's of interest at the moment and um, has some discussion and controversy, I, I guess, is this um, idea of how many hours over the day should we be eating. And it gives me sort of this as a good example of, of showing how there are complicated issues with nutrition that may lead to one pattern of eating being good for some aspect but not so good for others. And um, most of the way that um, the obesity literature is is pointing in the moment is maybe that there's some advantages about time-restricted eating where we reduce the number of hours in the day that we spread our food over and there may be some metabolic advantages to um, to being able to reduce the number of hours in which we eat, to leave longer periods of time where we're fasting in terms of our metabolic control and maybe um, energy balance. And that that might be good from that aspect for some people, but it goes against some of the things that we talk about to athletes in terms of protein synthesis, for example, where we say that um, in terms of optimising protein synthesis over the day and remembering that lots of the parts of the immune system support that would be um, um, hopefully optimised in this in this period would be around protein synthesis. And so, you know, whether if we're restricting the number of hours that we're eating for one reason, then impacts on our ability to keep synthesising protein because we've got plenty of amino acids coming regularly over that period um so there's just you know two two opposing views and which one is going to be the most important um we don't really know but it's just one good example where one aspect of nutrition might be good for something for something but might be counterproductive for another and so we may have to change between two different ways of thinking depending on what is the goal and what is the circumstances I'm currently in. So what's good for me on this occasion might be different to something that's good on another occasion and it might be different to somebody else. And if we're flexible with our thoughts about nutrition, I think that's probably the best um, the best approach to take because it means that, you know, we're not thinking that everything's an absolute truth and we're not going to get into these diet wars where, you know, we've got people lining up to say, my way is the only way and you're completely wrong. Um, I think, you know, we've got to realise that there's all, all ways of thinking have probably got some benefits, but they may not be appropriate for everybody or at all periods of time. So I'm hearing there that, that there may be some uh, benefit for general health, well-being, controlling adiposity and so on for, from fasting. That that perhaps might not be the, the the best thing to be doing now during these sorts of circumstances, um, when actually looking to perhaps maintain energy balance. I'm also thinking there about that idea of of training low and and reducing carbohydrate intake for a period of time to perhaps try and get some additional training adaptation or or fat burning effect. Um, but ingesting carbohydrates, certainly for athletes, is going to be important at this sort of period of time. And um, I'm, I'm wondering how you're 
navigating that particular conundrum for maintaining immune system under um, viral threat versus um, getting training adaptations? Yes, because we think of um, carbohydrates not only being an important fuel for the muscle, but also being an important fuel for the immune system. And although we haven't got long-term studies that can say that if you're restricting carbohydrate um, for long periods or frequent occasions, that that leads to some sort of an immune threat that then means that you're more likely to get more colds in a year or have worse um, risks in terms of immune responses. We can't show that, but we can certainly show in acute situations when you look at the immune response to a single series of exercise bouts or a short um, period, we can certainly see perturbations in the immune system which suggest that having more carbohydrate support is a better way to to, um, support the immune system as well. So I guess there's circumstantial evidence that would suggest that being particularly around prolonged or very high intensity exercise, making sure that it, that is well fueled would be the best way to perform, but also the best way to support the immune system. And although the train low, as you said, may have some benefits in terms of some of the other adaptations in the muscle, then maybe it's a bit more risky at this, this stage to be doing in terms of the immune response. Uh, what's your advice for people around um, decision making? Because what I'm what I'm hearing and seeing from people is that they that the usual habit and routine of going into a supermarket and choosing what they've always chosen is now out of the window. Um, in terms of uh, as a, as a byproduct of people stockpiling or um, or. Uh, buying up rice and and pasta from everyone um, else. Now perhaps we're going to have to be thinking differently about the sorts of recipes that we're creating or the the, the balance of a plate or a diet over a day, um, given that we might have completely different choices available. Yes, it's an interesting time. Um, this is one of the few times in my life that I've um, been going to a supermarket and not being able to buy the, the whole range of things that I wanted. And it's not just that momentary occasion that it affects, you know, it starts affecting your psyche about, you know, hoarding and what would happen if if this was going to be a, a long-term situation and how would I cope. So the first thing we need to get people to do is to relax and to recognise that this isn't a time when the supply is threatened, it's just our patterns of buying that have um, exacerbated things. So if we can relax both as a community so that we share things more but also take some of that anxiety and stress away from food because often when we think there's a shortage, um, our natural inclination is to not just to stock up but it's to overeat as well, thinking, well, if I don't need it now, I may not get to see it again, so um, I'll be on the safe side. So if we can learn to calm ourselves down and and get into a a better frame of mind individually and as a community, I think that will help. But even if if there were to be long-term shortages or just some occasional um, lack of some of the things that we have or even just um, you're not able to go as often so that you need to be able to make the food that you have be more um, well used so that it all sort of dovetail together then I think some of the creative things that maybe our parents were better at doing um, such as planning menus for a week so that when you bought things you know you use some of it here but the leftovers could get used there and that the the food really integrated over over the whole period of time rather than um, the way that a lot of people live which is to think what do I feel like right now as a random decision and you know every meal that they have is sort of chosen on ad hoc basis rather than being thought of as being part of an integrated plan so being able to plan ahead so that the food all integrates Um, but then also getting smart at being able to use what you've got you know there's some there's some nice websites and cookbooks that are really good at being able to say um, if you've got this and that what are the kinds of things that you could make with it so that you're really 
making the recipes follow what you've got rather than starting a recipe from scratch that has no context around the, 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 the food that's available or um, what would you do if you didn't have a certain item. And that's good for people to be able to be more flexible with the way they think and plan, but also a bit more creative, but be nutritionally balanced. It's still going to be enjoyable to eat. And it's maybe calls on a bit more creativity for me to do it, but then maybe having achieved it, I'll feel more pleased with the outcome and there'll be a sense of achievement around that. What I'm hearing in that is is um, perhaps we're going to be all upgrading our culinary skills and our lateral uh, cooking uh, repertoire that we that, that might come out of this with uh, with uh, an upgraded population around nutrition. Yeah, I, I like to think of that. I'm, I'm I'm a silver lining person, so I'm always thinking of um, you know what are some benefits that you can get of something that might look otherwise challenging. And, you know, I certainly think if, you know, when I speak to my mum about the way that she ran our family um, eating patterns, I mean, she planned everything out over the week and and there's a lot of, well, I buy peas for this and it'll go into this recipe and then the rest of the peas can go in somewhere else or if I make this, the leftovers can be then used in a different way. And, and I think um, having, you know, gone through world wars when food rationing was around there was more thought around how food could work better together in in an integrated way because of necessity um but of course when i grew up there was there was sort of superfluity and there was also a lot of food that was available all the year round like when my parents grew up there was very much seasons around food and you only saw things at a certain point of time so you were able to create different sorts of recipes or adapt recipes to go with what was available rather than having absolutely everything every time you went into the supermarket there to buy. So maybe we'll learn some of those skills um, out of this outcome. As you said, that we'll upgrade our our culinary skills and we'll, we'll be smarter at the way that we do things. Yeah, I saw an article uh, just yesterday that, that – sh- was reporting companies that are doing well out of this particular crisis and <clears throat> turbo trainers, for example, for indoor training, um, uh, the pharmacies are, are obviously doing very well. And, and one that perked my interest was, was seed companies. So for home growing, you know, it's a, it's a, back to wartime footing of, of grow your own. And, um, and maybe that's the, that's what we're going to experience certainly in the UK of, of, uh, peas and potatoes all being um, produced themselves rather than taking responsibility from supermarket. That's a nice idea. And I mean, lots of us have probably got little balconies that we could have a, a small home garden going that we wouldn't have thought about using in that way before. And that could be, um, yeah, another really nice outcome. And I, I must report, although I'm a bit ashamed of it, I, I, we, try and, we try in our house to champion... Um, just being conservative and, and not wasting, turning your lights off and eating your food up. But it, it never really sticks with the kids. Um, they, they just sort of, yeah, whatever. But now, uh, uh, like our bins are due in a few days' time and our, our bin is empty. We, we've wasted so little over the last couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. that's a lesson in us in itself of, of, gosh, we've been so wasteful over these years. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so so just um, just any any other last thoughts and and tips? You you mentioned that there might be a few sort of macronutrient uh, ideas that that are dependent upon whether you're an athlete or what what's your goal. Uh, are there any other suggestions that sort of cut through that that people should be thinking about? Um, we briefly touched on the the protein idea and how useful it is to be able to spread it over the day in sort of more even amounts and if you think about the way that most western people eat um, we really back end our protein intake to the evening so most of the protein that we consume is at dinner and you know we're quite good at um, having 
very large amounts of, of, of meat. Sometimes it's because that's sort of that's what we're having. But also that idea that you use up everything that you've got. You know, if if I buy a packet of steak or, or chicken breasts, whatever, you tend to cook them and eat them because that's what was in the packet rather than thinking, well, what did I really need? And maybe I could get two meals out of that or I could have leftovers for, for lunch the next day. So both from the point of view of making less waste but also from the idea of being able to get better protein spread over the day, there we might you know think about planning our meals so that more happened at breakfast and lunchtime and that when we choose a snack, if we've got a long gap between meals, that we have smaller amounts of protein spread more profitably so that there's always that good topping up of, of um our amino acid stores and in the case of exercise, we know that when we exercise, we turn on protein synthetic machinery for the next 24 hours at least and that every time we eat some protein on top of that, we're accentuating the, the response to exercise. So being able to spread that responsiveness nicely over the 24 hours by spreading the protein is, a, is another good outcome of, of being better claimed with the eating. So... If we've got our turbo trainer and now because we're inside, we're um, routinely doing our exercise. I'm, one of the things I'm thinking is that this is probably a great time for exercise, whereas other people are saying, oh, it's going to reduce our energy expenditure to be self-isolated. I'm seeing you know, so many of my friends posting that they're doing their exercise in a routine or they're going out and doing their walk because now they've got more time in the day when they're not travelling to work. But they're also looking to create some structure around the day and that exercise part of part of the structure. So I think it might be when we look back a time when we started being more routine with our exercise and now we can start eating around that exercise to get the you know the best out of the session that we've done and the response that it creates. Yeah, I certainly um well we we set up supporting champions three plus years ago and and found very quickly that I didn't have the cycle to work. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to train out of a training center and needed that during the middle of the day so that I had a concerted effort of work uh, and support, but then needed some sort of break that refreshed my my thinking and change my environment. And whilst I'm not going out and perhaps cycling as much, still conscious of whether I should be doing that or not, um, just to have that that exercise break from which then I could uh, I could then reboot my day. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for those those ideas and, and tips. And I, and I love the the simplicity and, and some of the thoughts there. Um, it does feel like a, a wholesome approach to us rethinking about some of our our food and, and uh, our choices that we make on a day-to-day basis. Um, it would be remiss of me not to, to ask you about uh, your experiences in career, Louise. Just the, the, uh, I remember as my career started in, in the mid-90s after the Atlanta Games and, and up towards your home games in Sydney, and, um, and the, the whole system in the UK was just about to just starting for the first time <clears throat> and then post Sydney there was this this wave of recognition for uh, this clutch of people that that assembled in Australia that um the the David Pines uh Chris Gores the David Martins and yourself um what an amazing period of time that would have been for for you and I'm, I'm interested to hear about your reflections over the years about how much it's changed and and what your um, what you've experienced during that time. Um, where, where are you at at the moment? Because I know that the Australian Institute of Sports system has, has changed just recently. And um, where, where is it at now? Um, so we've had a major restructure almost two years ago. And the, um, I guess the, the principle of it was to devolve a lot of the responsibility for science and preparation of athletes to the national sporting organisations. So the role of the AIS changed dramatically. Um, the science departments were all um, 
dismissed and the scientists um, have either gone into um, working directly to the sports or some have gone into academia, but certainly the teams that I worked with at the AOS that you talked about are no longer there. Um, and that's a sadness in, in many ways for me. Um, I've chosen to stay on at the AOS and I've seen you know, some of the new ways that it's doing business and it's trying to make itself a, um, a, a core part of the, the high-performance element by doing things that nobody else can do, to do sort of the, um, the, the grand um, projects or to, to try and be a, a, a network instigator. And so there's some good projects that have, have started. I mean, there's some things that I've been surprised at, um, at, at seeing just how well they've gone because there's been a lot of, you know, criticism of the way that AOS has gone. And, and you know, as I've said, it's been personally sad for me to see some of the teams that I've worked on um, disintegrate. But, you know, it's been replaced by some some projects that have, have been um, really successful or um, things that I admire. It's too early in the in the phase of it, I think, to see all the things that will come out of it. But certainly there's different ways in which we're doing business and the sports are being um, called upon to take much greater responsibility for their, their own preparation. Um, and there's a lot more, I guess, remote working now. I mean, we've almost... Um, We've preceded this this um, self isolation period by setting up a lot more remote working between the NSOs, where the NSOs would have their own teams working. But the idea was that we would need to set up some way in which networks were created, which needed to be remote because there's no longer this, this you know the same teams of people working at a central place like the um, the Bruce campus of the RS. And so there's been quite a few initiatives where um, Network leads have set up remotely and, and tried to set up activities or opportunities for people working with their sports to still have the ability to interact with um, their same profession where they're not in big teams in a, a central place anymore. I guess that's a little bit like the English system has always been. You had more of a, a decentralised um, pattern of working from the start yeah. and, you know, more different centres and so a lot more of your um professionals would have been already sort of been networked remotely or having um, independent work patterns but then having ways in which they connected up from time to time in, in groups. So um, hmm. it'll be interesting to see what the future of sports science is now, though, that um, there's fewer of these big teams where you get serendipitous interaction between people. I mean, the, the things that I remember most about that phase at the Institute you just described was just um, driving into work each day and thinking, I wonder what's going to happen today because when you've got a whole lot of people together who are just, you know, remarkable and you throw people together, just things happen in ways that are completely unpredictable. I mean, working with, you know, the Chris Gores and the Dave Martins, the Dave Pines um, and so many other you know, wonderful people. There were just so many conversations that you'd have. Um, I mean, I miss the days of just having coaches to hang out with all the time because, you know, you can force people together in a little workshop and try and make them solve a problem and, yes, you learn something out of it. But, you know, some of the best things I've ever done or some of the smartest ideas that I've ever heard or had have come from just having a, a random conversation with coaches, often, you know, it was over dinner or it was on pool deck or it was, you know, in a place where you weren't being forced to, to do it and you'd just be brainstorming and, and um, it, 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 it was a very special time. And it's not just the way that the AIS has gone now or it's not just a reflection of the decisions we've made. I think the way that our lives have gone um, in general has removed us from those opportunities for serendipitous conversations. You know, in the old days when I was working with sport at first, you know, you'd go away on a training camp or an altitude camp with a, a, a sport 
when you'd be with them for four weeks and there was no expectation that you were doing anything other than being in the moment with that sport. You know, you weren't racing back to your room each night to answer emails. You were sitting around talking to coaches and athletes and creating these, you know, relationships and different levels of rapport that we don't do these days. And it's not just because the AOS has gone down a certain pathway that these things have changed. I think our lives have changed um, in, in, in many ways. And, and maybe maybe this period will reset some of that again. We'll learn new ways of um, interacting or some of the ways in which we'll, we'll work now will create different interactions that um, spark us to new ideas and new ways of doing things. Yeah, I think I think probably we only had maybe three years uh, of of that freedom. Um, what I would, as I would describe it, where we were assigned to sport centrally, and so I worked with athletics um, and previously rowing, um, and and it was almost as if the institute system was assigning people to sports, but that we had this central hub where we could congregate. Um, we would recover, we would lick our wounds, we would share ideas, we would have that that brainstorming experience. And fairly early on in our journey, we were awarded the home games. And, and then very quickly, the funding model changed. So it was 2007, I think, that the injection of money towards the 2012 games, which meant that it it was essentially decision making was taken out of our hands about what was best for the system. And it was the onus was put on to the sports to make the decisions. And at the time, it, we had such a, a massive kickback to that. It was, you know, was, oh, this isn't right. You know, we, we need to be deciding the, the strategic direction of this. And in, in retrospect, it gave um, a huge lesson to our experiences of professionalization that we absolutely had to be on point for the interpersonal skills, the craft of how we put, how we put our profession forward, the scientific rigor. But we, we didn't – We what it meant, though, was everyone was scattered. Everyone was within their sports. Everyone was separate. Everyone was wearing a different T-shirt. And there was almost no unity. And so the, the leaders in the system – I was head of physiology at the time – uh, we were coordinating, we were trying to nudge and influence as opposed to make big, bold decisions. Um, but I, 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 I remember looking and thinking that your system in Australia uh, was fortunate enough to, to have that protection for, for a long period of time. But at the same time, we, we experienced this, this tough decision-making uh, where the sports were making the decisions on our behalf. Yeah, it's it's hard to know whether you know one model is all better or has it all right um, compared to the other. And as I said, you can't divorce the fact that you you know you, your whole life and the way that the world is working has also changed in the background, and that has an influence on on so many things. But you know, I always think the the opportunity to have great people thrown together with not just freedom, it's also, I mean, I, th- I think when I started the AAS, the the idea that you had about all your teammates and all the, the people you worked with was that you were all there working together and that everybody there was bought. And then somewhere along the line we got into this sort of people management 101 and all these courses where suddenly we had to do all these reviews and there were sort of processes around things and PDPs and 360 reviews and some of the um, some of the fun went out of it because it became so structured the way we had to interact and I'm not saying that everybody's personal style of working was always terrific intrinsically but um, you can over-engineer things I think and you know, sometimes we spent so much time on the administrivia of it rather than getting on with the, you know, the, the real work and that we often stopped um, thinking about our interactions and the people that we're interacting with as, as, as being a wonderful privilege rather than, you know, they became sort of a, a bureaucratic requirement to do sort of things in a certain way. So... I know it's always easy to look back on the old days and they're always looking 
you know, so so wonderful. But I think what you said about the the freedom and just the um, the culture that you were doing something that was really exciting and it was such a fun time to be part of it is um, a really important part of the the reason why things worked so well because you know you were all going in there with that pre-existing idea it was a you know it was it couldn't have been anything other than successful if everybody went in with that idea that it was going to be so it was almost you know destiny you you created this um plan that was going to work because you went in with that being the, the way that you were doing things yeah, and, and I like that idea as a like almost a beacon of excellence that that you're creating and being part of um, something exciting, innovative that that creates a reputation before itself, and um, that the mystical uh, nature of what went on at the Australian Institute of Sport dominated our thinking for a lot of time about what's going on in there, and uh, <laughs> and we um, and and we've probably suffered, and I think are now reflecting on what exactly you described of of command and control uh get everything on a spreadsheet and and it's going to be amazing type of mentality of of if we pin this down we plan it to the nth degree and get everybody at a at a high common standard and it's robust what that lacks is is for the freedom and innovation to say you know what i just fancy having a having an explore of this, or I, I just, I reckon we should do this. And those hubs to have the resources and the freedom to, to explore. Uh, we, we lacked that, uh, certainly on the road to London and, and, and after that, it, it gave results because it sort of uplifted some of the standards, but it, it didn't feel as sparky as an innovative or actually probably from a personal point of view as, as enthused, uh, and uh, you're trying to control everything to a point where it's it's um, obsessive, opposed to that yes. sense of wonder. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Well, what? Okay. So what? So what's? You, you mentioned a couple of exciting projects, a couple of things, and so you've got a, and you've got a silver lining um, mentality yourself. Um, What's different? What's what's what have you learned? What's the benefits of uh, of a new approach, and what have you experienced? Um, so I'll, I'll pick two different things. Um, one is I'm now um, a very small unit, and I've had opportunities to previously work with a whole you know range of sports, but um, now in the new system, I don't have a day to day role with athletes, but I've had um, a separate um, opportunity to work with Australian Catholic University and to have some injection of research opportunities through their resources. And so I've been able to think about well, what's the best way of, of doing this kind of research and have come up with the research camp. Concept. So we've been running what we called our supernova camps and it started with race walking because of um, previous relationships I've had with um, Jared Talent and Australian race walking coaches, Brent um, Valance being one of them. And, you know, through their influence I was able to um, start a, an opportunity to have um, international race walkers come to Australia to the Institute of Sport and we do a training camp, but embedded in the training camp would be a research project. And these athletes are absolutely remarkable and so generous, and um, we've always had the philosophy that we were in here to do a project together. So we come up with the question, and these these athletes are not just the subjects, they're the co-researchers. So everybody's invested in doing this well. We get a, a remarkable training camp effect out of it. I mean, if you, if you want to improve your performance, the best thing you can do is to train every day with elite athletes and just always be, you know, pushing each other in training or learning from each other's um, experiences and, and ways of doing things. And so we've had some wonderful opportunities to do these um heavy-duty research projects within training camps which have created a, a really fun culture, great science, and it, it's become just a sort of a new little environment. So for me, having 
you know, I don't have the people management or I don't have the whole range of sports that I'm working with on a day-to-day basis. So I've been able to take time out to be able to create these um, opportunities. And not only have the athletes been incredibly wonderful with their ability to, 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 to absolutely embrace it, but without the team that I used to have at the AIS working with me, I've had to then, um, you know, create opportunities for volunteers or collaborators or people from all parts of Australia and all parts of the world to come as well just to provide the manpower because these, these camps are heavy duty in terms of, you know, resource requirement. They're they, um, incredibly busy for a month with all hands on deck and I've had the most incredible experiences with having you know, young researchers and some older collaborators as well just come and give up their time and be part of this. And, you know, some of the things that I'm now doing as a older researcher that are quite sophisticated, I'm relying on these really young students and very young scientists to um, to come and do. And they've just been absolutely remarkable. So, you know, I'm, I'm now interacting with a whole, a whole new group of people and I feel quite excited about the the future of sports science because some of these some of these people are just wonderful. Like they're so talented and they're so hard working and, and such good fun. And so I feel really positive that there'll be a new group of sports scientists coming up and new ways of being able to do research that have come out of this experience. And now if I wouldn't if, if the AOS hadn't changed, if there hadn't been a restructure, I mightn't have had the opportunity to be able to dive into this kind of work so um, enthusiastically or have it take over so much of my life. So that's been a, a really um, fantastic opportunity. It, it was sort of serendipitous that um, as one part of the AOS was, was um, closing down, then Australian Catholic University came to me with opportunities to ramp up and it's sort of all all worked out in a, a really wonderful way. But that's, you know, for me been a, a really um, a great opportunity of a, a new way of doing things and I think we do good science as well as have a lot of good fun. So that's been positive. Tell me about the next one. Um, can I ask you about that? Because your Project Supernova's, again, created a reputation for itself uh, globally that again that we're looking in and and saying you're doing something wonderful there but it sounds as though which i didn't know about it sounds like is there's a there's a step change in the development and the opportunities available to the next generation of sports scientists that is absolutely unique experiential uh and developmental for them so potentially you're you're not necessarily it, 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 there's a part of it about the project but you're you're in a sense creating the next generation of of a new breed of sports scientists in the future by the sounds of it yeah and look, you know it, it, it's just luck that it's happened that way because if i'd been so well resourced with my team yeah. around me before i would have continued to do things using that old model but necessity meant that i had to go out and find a, a new sort of an army to help out and i look at some of these people and i think not only are you so remarkable, but also that you're giving to this for no reason. Like it's it's not like I'm paying you a million dollars or this is going to um, be your study. I get um, just the most remarkable um, people coming with this generosity and this commitment and this sort of hardworking um, philosophy and, uh, and fun. Like the other thing that we do is we really have fun. We've become a real family and those people that have been part of Supernova will be Supernova for life because, um, you know, the, you, you get in there. It's like um, sometimes I think like it's going to war together, you know, you, you go off and you do this, this project and it's so busy and so chaotic um, over that, that month and then the write-up, but you bond in a way that's completely different to things that I've done before. So. I really loved it. And I remember being asked a question by David Pine at um, ACSM one year. I presented some warm-up data. So changing the warm-up before athletes go out to to compete in 800 metres and, and replicating sort of competition dynamics. And he asked uh, a, a very astute question. How did you convince them to change the warm-up? Because warm-up is one of those things that that's almost precious. It's protected by the coach and the athlete. They don't want to go tinkering mm. around with it. Um, 
Uh, and I said, it's taken 10 years, David. So, uh, um, and that's right. He asked, why, why are you present- sharing information about competitive advantage? I thought you Brits were all trying to keep all your secrets to yourselves. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, go and have the conversation with the coach because it's taken me 10 years to broach this um, in a way that means that they're open to this idea. So how did you, how did you communicate or convince or persuade people of the cost benefit there uh, of doing something completely different that there's going to be some um, some benefits to you um i think the starting point was having a good relationship with athletes and coaches so the fact that i'd worked with brent and with jared um and jared had had the success gave me um probably a, a false sense of um of respect from the, the crowd, and so um, the, when we set it up in the first place, and I, I sat down with Jared and, and um, Brent and said, "Well, you know, do you think some of your um, colleagues would come and be part of this, and what would they get out of it?" And it started off with sort of thinking, "Well, the the opportunity to do this really intensive training camp and train so hard was going to be a benefit. So then um, there was perhaps, well, we know we're going to get that out of it, so maybe then we'll be prepared to do a little bit of tinkering around or changing with some of the things we'd normally do at this time because we know that even if we get that a little bit wrong, we'll still get an overall benefit out of the whole experience. And so with the first camp, um, you know, we, we talked about what is of interest to people. We were interested in the concept of periodising um, carbohydrate in the training support, and so that was one of the things. But at the same time, the, the keto diet was doing the rounds of, of being repopularised, and there was a lot of questions. And um, when we started, it was in the November of, of the year so that it was at the very beginning of the season. So a lot of athletes were really keen to say, well, look, it's at the beginning. If I make a mistake here and it right. doesn't work out that I've chosen the right thing to do, I've still got plenty of time to be able to um, to fix it up. And so the first one was a real experiment to say, well, what if we do some just completely um, different ways of, of following a diet and training and when we did it, we found we got some really good scientific answers out of it, but there were some breakthrough performances that came out of that camp. Some of the athletes that had gone into it as, as sort of up-and-coming athletes then did really well in that next year or next month and then the next year. And so we started this reputation of being part of these camps is really good. You know, you get something out of it, um, whether it's the training, whether it's what you learn. And we, we found that, in so many ways, the serendipitous outcomes, so many of the athletes made friends with each other and then there were so many opportunities to go and train in each other's countries and there were um, just some great stories. You know, I still bump into um, younger athletes these days who say that they were part of, in their own country, a coaching experience where someone had come back from Supernova and passed on some information that they'd got there and they'd benefited from it and then they wanted to come back and um, join the whole circle. So it's, it's been a really lovely experience of just thinking how far these ripples can go out in what um, what you can do and what the athletes and coaches that are part of it or the scientists that are part of it will go on and um, and and take forth with them as well. So it, it was just an idea whose time has come, I think. It was, it was lucky, but it's been really good fun, really good science, and, um, you know, I hope it's a, a model that we'll be able to take into other sports. I mean, I, the Supernova projects started with the race walkers, and I don't even know why we call them Supernova. I just wanted to. When I was devising the first one, I thought oh, it needs to have a code name, like if you know, it, was, oh. it needs to. Yeah, and, and I was thinking, well, what's something big and bright? Oh, a supernova. But I didn't realise I didn't hadn't done enough reading at that point, and I didn't realise that supernovas eventually um, <laughs> <laughs> they 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 burst they burst themselves or they they um, they stop producing. But um, we still go. But we've. 
started doing some other projects now. With um, we've done some with um, marathon. We've done some with cycling. Um, we've got rowers wanting to come in for that same sort of experience. So I think you know once we've got the franchise idea right, we'll be able to move it out into other sports and other questions. Um, they may not always be as as special as that first supernova, but it's it's you know just a new way of doing things and. The idea that you make the coaches and the athletes part of the team rather than, I think, back to the first part of my career, maybe we we were um, too much about us and them. You know, the athletes were always the subjects, right. and so that you do things to them rather than them investing themselves in the same way. I think that's that's the difference or the line that we cross now that makes this much better research because, I mean, as you know, if you're trying to measure performance, it's the most difficult thing you'll ever measure. And one of the reasons is that unless the athlete's totally invested in performing, then, you know, you, you'll never know whether you got it right. You know, if athletes are just dialing in at performance just to, you know, to, to tick the box on a on a, a sheet, that's not really getting to the nub of what research should be about, and so making athletes part of the um, part of the team and having them as excited about finding out something as you mm. is, um, I think, one of the real secrets of doing it well. I absolutely love that. I think that that's that's got to be the way forward. Where it's one team, everyone wears the same badge, and as opposed mm. to sub teams, and and I, I, philosophically, I think it's a challenge when. When sports are probably trying to compete for portions of the pie in the funding pot, for example, that, that if one sport does well, they'll probably get a little bit more next time. I think that's that's tricky. But I love that I love the fact that you just chose the the idea uh, of the the name. I did think I looked at the project and I thought that's it's got to have some sort of special link, some sort of super <laughs> idea. I, I did wonder actually now that you've said that because you're. Your Twitter bio says, lover of all the CH things, Chocolato, Chanel and Champagne. So it's a sh- is it a Champagne Supernova that you're, uh, you're going to create one day? You're going to go in a burst of glory. What was, th- <laughs> what was the other thing, Louise? You said there were two things. Uh, yeah, so the other thing is, and this is something I've just been um, part of, it wasn't something I instigated, but um, we've had some networks set up working with um, trying to do projects that are centred across different sports and, and across different um, universities and and um, the state academies and institutes that make up our federation of, of, academy, of, of, of sports institutes. Um, we, you know, we're doing little projects around the supplement program, around best practice protocols or what have you, but... Um, that's been my first experience in trying to set up a, a truly national um, network. Previously, um, most people were very much part of their own institute and so the idea that you were doing something in a group was sometimes, you know, that people would think, oh, yeah, look, I should do that. That sounds like a good thing to do. But because you're first priority was to your own institution, you didn't necessarily really give everything to a, a group project and there might have been some jealousies between groups, you know, um, we're a federation and often the states compete against each other, so even though you might have been doing a national project, um, you know, you could say, well, I don't want to give away all the secrets, you know, on my organisation to always look better than the others and so I'll pretend that I'm doing a, a, a group project but really um, I'm just sort of going through the motions and I'm really, I've got a primary team that I'm always going to um, to, 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 to um, promote but some of the projects that we've been doing more recently have been really truly national and they've had all kinds of um, bodies contributing, not just the sports institutes, but um, some of the universities and other academic institutions have really actually come to the party. And, and so I've been thinking that, um, you know, this is another good thing that's come out of it, that there's now more people who seem to be, for whatever reason, 
being more generous and more being truly collaborative towards a, a bigger project than than I've seen previously. And um, some of that's is is multi professional. It's um, you know different um, holistic team approaches to things, and that's been also a, a good experience. And it's nice to see that I can contribute to it and that other people are driving it. So. You know, I can see that there's lots of great expertise and, and motivation coming from other parts of the of the country than I'd seen before. So it sounds as though the the changes have led to uh, more widespread and connected collaboration across the system, where everyone down has put their tools down a moment and thought, let's think about the the greater good and let's let's really cooperate and support each other. Yeah, you've, you've, you've explained it much better than I have. <laughs> but, yeah. Thank you. It's getting late in my day. <laughs> yeah. Well, wonderful. I could talk to you for forever. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege to, to speak to you. And, um, you know, uh, it's not for me to say, but thank you for being a, a real inspiration and role model to so many people. And um, to hear your reflections and advice today has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Louise. A pleasure. Thank you very much. You can follow Louise on Twitter at Louise M. Burke. We're also on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Check out our LinkedIn page, Supporting Champions, and you can join our Facebook group site, Performance People. The links are in the show notes. You can subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Thank you.